No, working with Darren is, unfortunately, has spoilt, spoilt me pretty much for working with any others. In, in many ways, he's kind of flawless. Don't tell him that, by the way, um, except for the beard but, uh, and that yellow shirt. What's with that? But uh, <laughs> he's, he's a general by nature. He's a leader by nature. So he doesn't have to try. That, you, you trust him. I trust his taste. I trust his vision. I trust him as a filmmaker. I trust him as a person. So that is something that's invaluable as, as an actor. And then he has a generosity of spirit to kind of invite ideas and invite inspiration from wherever it might come. You know, he's not arrogant in that way. Um, and, you know, I see it from the lighting guy coming up with it. I'd see it. He made it a, an, like an announcement at the beginning, inviting everyone to make it their film. And... I, you know, I certainly feel like, well, I'm, I feel like a part of it. I feel like I've been part of the film. He's taken on my ideas, and I think everyone would say the same thing. You know, it's a, he's a pretty unique guy. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Not A Bomb Podcast. This is the podcast where we go back and talk about movies that bombed in the theaters or maybe the critics just didn't like. Brad, uh, last week, episode 160, we had some fun talking about this comedy horror hybrid. And boy, talk about 180 degree turn for this week's episode for 161. I don't know how you're feeling, but I feel like a little whiplash. I do. I do. I feel like, uh, yeah, my life flashed before my eyes and now we're doing the fountain. Yeah. The fountain from 2006. So uh, of course we have one of the family back, Sammy from the gentleman's guide to midnight cinema. How are you doing tonight, Sammy? I'm doing good, man. I'm doing good. I thought I'd come back, you know, I feel, I felt like this week you guys were doing something light. (laughs) didn't, Didn't take a lot of brain power to talk about. And, uh, you know, I thought this was a good opportunity to come in and do barely any work. Yeah, uh, good good movie to to decide to join this week. Oh boy, as they would say, lots of heavy lifting on this one. Yeah, this 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 might go places. I'm I'm really interested to dive in. So let's just let's get the customary stuff out of the way. I'm going to kick it over to you, Brad. Let let's talk about uh, when the fountain came out because I got a feeling we're going to be talking about the director for a little bit. Yeah, so released November 22nd of 2006 with a reported budget of $35 million. We will get into production and development. That is half of what it was originally going to be. Um, its total box office run, domestic, makes $10 million in some change. Internationally, makes six point three in some change for a grand total of $16.4 million. Doesn't even make half of its production budget back. Yeah. So we're looking probably for this thing to break even somewhere between the 60 and $70 million range. So they wrote off quite a bit with this one. Seems, seems like a really aggressive plan given the content of this film. Uh, I would agree with that, Troy, you know, you and I also talk about the risk and what we're doing with our budgets and $35 million for the fountain seems quite ambitious, but when you think of it could have been 70, 
Uh, yeah, we'll get into that. Yep. So, opening weekend, it opens 10th. 10th. Wow. Opening in 1,472 theaters, so opens wide, makes $5.4 million. Like I said, that's good enough for fifth or for 10th. And it gets beat out by lots of films, and they are Happy Feet, Casino Royale, Deja Vu, Deck the Halls. Deck the Halls made $16 million opening weekend. Remember when in the film like Deck the Halls could make almost $17 million its opening weekend? Yeah. Uh, Borat in its fourth week, still making $15 million. The Santa Claus three, the escape clause, uh, stranger than fiction flushed away and Bobby all beats our lovely fountain. It's opening weekend. And critically, uh, the fountain sits at 52% with the critics. That's a 206 critical reviews. Um, so that you're looking at right at a hundred and you know, a hundred and a hundred, uh, split down the middle there, and then seventy four percent with the audience, and that's with a quarter of a million audience reviews. That's so surprising. That is, uh, so, so just to to backtrack for a little bit, that basically means that seventy four percent of the people who have seen this film really enjoy it. Yes. Okay. Uh, which is surprising to me. Do you know who does not enjoy this film, Troy? I bet you a select group that happened to have a website. <laughs> that that probably might view this uh, as a film with pagan worldviews. I don't know. <laughs> Bingo. Okay. Uh, org is a website that reviews films, not for their quality, but for their content. And they call the fountain abstract new age propaganda. Ooh, propaganda. <laughs> okay. Yes. Ooh. All right. <laughs> and for those who are, who are not familiar, uh, movie guide, uses a scale of plus four to minus four plus four being the most holy and minus four being you're on a crash course with a dying star. Gentlemen, <laughs> where do you think the fountain sits on the old movie guide scale? I'll, I'll defer to you, Sammy. Uh, I'm going to go negative three. Okay. We got a negative three from Sammy. <sighs> I don't know. This one, this one's tough. I, I think, I think if you're looking at it through their mindset, it could easily go to a negative four, but I'm, I'm, you know what? I'm just saying negative four It is a negative four. Yeah. It's a rare occurrence. when We have a negative four on this podcast. Here we go. New age pagan worldview yep, that falsely go. mixes several different religions from elements of biblical Christianity, 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 and the Genesis account of creation to polytheistic, occult Mayan religious uh, rituals from political Catholicism in the 16th century Spain to Tibetan uh, Buddhist meditation and humanistic humanism in a futuristic 26th century, plus some anti-Catholic, anti-Christian content, four obscenities, one F word, three light profanities, some intense sequences of violence, including Spanish soldier impaled by spears, Spanish conquistador kills several Mayan warriors with his sword. Man is stabbed in stomach. Several sequences of a man using a needle and ink in order to tattoo himself. Brain surgery on monkeys depicted. Uh, priest whips himself to purge his sin. Yeah. Um, some priests hang heretics upside down and drop them to their death. <laughs> uh, let's see. Three other men are killed with a sword. 
in a melee scientist grabs a doctor by his throat and slams him against a wall. Yeah. Very bad. And a Mayan priest is killed with a sacred knife. Sexual content includes a man bathes his cancer stricken wife, which leads to a passionate kiss. I uh, think it led more to is, a kiss though. <laughs> uh, well, she is in the tub and pulls him fully clothed into the tub with her and implied sex between married couple. The biggest problem there is the amount of water damage they just did to the oh, house. Oh yeah, they that if they <laughs> had like hardwood floors, you just ruined it. Naturalistic. This is one of my favorite parts. Naturalistic upper male nudity. <laughs> what, what? Okay. okay. <laughs> I just, that was not the adjective I thought they would use yep. for that. But okay, all right. Okay. Uh, and women's and women's soldiers. What? And her and legs are seen in the bat. Soldiers. Yeah, it says soldiers. Okay, it's okay. a body part I'm Are, not familiar with on the okay. female anatomy. <laughs> yeah, uh, alcohol. Soldiers, soldiers for Christ. <laughs> alcohol use includes a man taking a celebratory shot of hard liquor, no drugs or smoking, and godless obsession. Godless obsession. Okay. Okay, and last but not least, films you could have seen November of 2006. Um. Let me get to that spot. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, here we go. We have Borat flushed away the Santa Claus 3. So Borat flushed away Santa Claus 3. Borat makes 325, flushed away 253, the Santa Claus 188. Wow. Insane. Uh, A good year. Hmm. And we have Stranger Than Fiction. And then we go on for Casino Royale, which makes $679 million. Happy Feet, which makes five ninety eight, And, uh, oh, Deja Vu, which makes two twenty two. Wow. I know. It is insane what these films pull in. It is insane. And yeah. Yeah. that's a, oh, yeah, and that's about it. Yeah. So films used to make a lot of money. They don't anymore. I don't know if you guys heard. Yeah, don't make any money now. Not this year. Yeah, I mean, people were going to the movies at this point. Yeah, Yeah. that's true. So, Brad, do you intentionally pick movies with monkey trauma for me? (laughs) Yes, I I love doing monkey trauma films for you, Troy. (laughs) Because okay, I just I didn't I didn't know there was a theme here. Like you you try and find (laughs) the most traumatic monkey film scenes in history, and you're like, Troy, I want to show this to you. To be fair, yeah, they cure the monkey. They don't shoot it in the chest with a gun. Okay, so I'll I give feel you like that. I've stepped up my game up a little <laughs> you bit. You did. You're getting better. Yeah. Also, also, Troy, I, I guess we don't ever, we don't say this a lot, but we're going to spoil the hell out of this movie because you can't talk about it without talking about the whole entire thing and the themes and everything going on. So if you haven't seen The Fountain, you might want to like, you know, think about watching it first and then coming back because we're going to talk about all sorts of stuff. Yes. Uh, And this is one that's been out for a while. Uh, I am surprised how many people have seen it. And you've had 17 years. Yeah, that's true. Uh, So let's talk about the people who helped bring this thing to life. We'll, We'll start with the folks behind the camera, primarily writer, director, Darren Aronofsky. So Sammy, when, when we do the list and we start kind of putting stuff together, uh, we often, you know, time show you, you, Jose, Hey, here are the films we're going to be talking about this year. And this is one that you immediately put your name to. And I I'm just curious, is that because of the film or is it the director? 
Uh, it's a little bit of a combination of both. Okay. I do like the director a lot. There's no doubt about it. I, even on the films, I think he fails at. He fails interestingly. Um, I think he's really one of the few auteurs that's getting to work in the system right now. Okay. And uh, I always think his stuff is interesting. I haven't seen uh, his most recent film. I know you have, The Whale. Yeah. Um, but I've uh, been meaning to see it, and I imagine I will at some point. But I did see Noah, and I thought, there's no way I'm going to like this. And I ended up liking it. And it was, talk about a bizarre movie. <laughs> that was a bizarre thing, too. So I don't know. I think that Aronofsky makes uh, interesting films. And I think they're thought-provoking and they're intellectual and and even if they don't always land, they get you thinking. Okay. And uh, I, I like that. Do you, do you have a favorite of his out of his, have you seen everything in his filmography? I guess I should ask. So I have not, I've not seen the whale yet and I've not seen mother, which is really weird. I, mother would seem like one that I would jump right on. Uh, and I just, for whatever reason, I've started it a couple of times and I've just never, I've never gotten it going. And I just don't know why uh, it's nothing against the film or anything. It's just one of those things that keeps dodging. I'm going to try to get it in as soon as possible, but I have seen everything else. Yes. I've seen everything, but those two, uh, do you, do you have a favorite of what, you've um, seen of well, I really, I mean, I like Requiem for a dream a lot, but you know, obviously it's a, it's ass a, it's, to ass. <laughs> it's a hard watch. It's transgressive. Uh, uh it's the pure yeah, yeah, definition. Yeah, it of is. It, right? I think, you know, I really like The Wrestler a lot. I really like this film a lot. But I guess if I had to pick a favorite out of all of his films, like, yeah, you know what? I'd probably have to go Requiem for a Dream, but The Wrestler is a close second. Okay. And this is a close third for the record. Oh, all right. Showing your cards early. Got it. <laughs> okay, Brad. Tipping the hat. Tipping the mm. hat there. Uh, Brad, what are what are your thoughts on this director? Yeah, I like Aronofsky quite a bit. Um, I feel I have seen all of. So he's one of those directors that I've seen all of his filmography um, from Pie to the Whale. Um, I feel like I'm an apologist for Mother. Like it is the most, maybe the most heavy handed film I've ever seen in my entire life. But I kind of love it uh, because it's really weird, too. Uh, The Wrestler, I think, is one of those films that obviously the performance is impossible to separate from the film, but um, it's still a wonderful film. Noah, like Sammy was saying is, is pretty batty for like a biblical story film. Uh, Black Swan, obviously I think after the wrestler, he was riding high and comes with ar- arguably probably his biggest film with Black Swan. And uh, yeah, I, I like him. It's funny. You know, he's a Harvard graduate and I think he might look, I, I love Aronofsky, but I think he might think he's smarter than he really is. I get a lot of pretension out of a lot of his films, especially this one and like mother, like they're not as smart as you think they are. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe he's not trying to do that, but I get a, a snidge of pretension from him. And that's coming from someone who loves pretension. A smidge? Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Smidge. I was, I was trying to be a little nice, Troy. No, I, hey, I, I agree with both of your comments. Uh, he is a filmmaker that the minute I see his name, I'm, I'm immediately interested in. Although there is one film that I've, I've just never sat down to watch. And I don't know what it is about it. It just never did anything for me. Um, I, I own it. I just haven't made the time to watch it. And it's Noah from 2014, which yeah, I felt the same way. Yeah. It there's every time I saw the trailer or the poster, I'm like, I, I just, I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready for it, but 
the more you got, you got to see it. <laughs> I will. I will. Uh, absolutely. Um, I, I find that the, the film that I think is his best film is the one that is the hardest watch for me. And that's Requiem for a dream. So yeah. I, I hate saying that's my favorite film because I, I don't know about you guys. It's one of those movies that the minute I saw it in the theater, I was like, okay, I am not going to forget that at all. Yeah, you don't put it on for a, like a Sunday afternoon. No. You're like, hey, I think I'm going to watch Requiem for a Dream and really just go into a really dark hole. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And I, I remember buying it on DVD, watching it again and going, okay, I, I will always remember this film. Yeah. I don't know if I need to watch it again. But when it came out on 4K, it was one of the ones I was excited about. But I'm sitting here going, I, I don't. I don't know when I'm going to watch that and much less do I want to see it in 4k. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, I read, I've seen it twice uh, and I haven't watched it in over a decade. I've watched it quite a few times, yeah. <laughs> which maybe says more about me than the actual film. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite uh, quotes about Darren Aronofsky came from, I was reading some stuff from Jennifer Lawrence, which they were in a relationship together. I think it was short lived. Mm-hmm. And yeah. she said, yeah, I worked on, uh, mother and I had no idea what it was about, and I was even sleeping with the director. And I was like, "Yeah, that's all great thing." Yeah. So I wonder if Rachel Vice felt the same way because that was the same situation here. Oh yeah, she, that's right. Um, at the time too, yeah. I, I find this interesting. Now you said Black Swan was his biggest film. That's not true. Uh, Noah was, but but listen to this. He's. I feel like, but like Academy, like all the award stuff. If, like yeah, Black you, Swan was yeah. Well, it, so let's I talk. Think- I think the stuff up to I think the wrestler and Black Swan back to back got him the money to make Noah. Yes, a hundred percent. And yeah. then Noah Noah's again one of them gambles. You see this was that like his blank? They call that like your blank check film. Yeah, you see yeah. this every now and then. You just saw it with Ari Aster and Bo is afraid, right? You kind of see this every now and then. Well, let me let me walk through this, and you'll see how we got to Noah. Uh, Pie, which came out in nineteen ninety eight. Now he was doing short films up to this. This is this is his first feature length film. Yeah. He did that on a hundred and thirty four thousand dollar budget, but ended up turning three point two million in ticket sales. It's so a good that, movie. I've never seen it. Yeah, it's really good. It's one of those like coming like directors that like put their stamp on their first film and come out and you're like, okay, I think I'm probably gonna see all this guy's films going forward. Obviously, like Tarantino, Kevin Smith had that for a little while. I mean, all yeah. these kind of these guys in the 90s and early 2000s that kind of laid their groundwork and you're yeah. like these guys are going to be in my life for a long time and that hey, pie did that yeah you feel the arnofsky uh kind of you feel it in pie and you really feel it in everything after pie yeah really, it's it's there pretty much throughout his old his whole filmography yeah two years later Re- requiem for a dream so so pie got him no- the notoriety to get a four million dollar budget that's not now that that gets a lot of accolades, but it only makes seven million. Still good, right? Yeah, yeah. fans uh, that love it love it. Absolutely, and I don't think this is a film too. You know, when we talk about um, how much they spend on advertising, etc. Requiem for a Dream when it came out to make seven million dollars, I, I think is pretty significant because it never got wide release. Yeah, and just think about the subject matter too. And that was like a DVD movie. Like I remember everyone that I knew had Requiem for a Dream on DVD. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And so the next film is the movie we're going to talk about today, which is The Fountain in 2006. And you already went through the budget. We'll talk about why it took six years in between. But two years later, he does The Wrestler with a $6 million budget. 
And to your point, Sammy, it does great at the box office with 44 million, gets a ton of accolades, follows that up with Black Swan. He gets a, a bigger budget, 13 million, but that one ends up going on to do $329 million global box office. That's that's pretty surprising. Yeah. That's huge. I would have never I never would have guessed that film had made that much money. And that's not his it, biggest hit. It was huge. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean it's, a, it's a, the one thing when I think of Arnofsky, one of the things I think of, regardless if you like his films or not, he really gets performances out of people. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, you look at these films and you can name a great performance in every one of these movies. Absolutely. Noah, so Okay, the wrestler in the Black Swan 100% gets him to write a check at this point, and he ends up getting a $125 million budget. Um, now, some say it, the budget actually goes up to 160 because apparently there, there was a lot of drama on getting that movie made as well. Yeah. And this is his, his most successful financial one, $359 million worldwide. So uh, that, that's super impressive. That is. I would never would have guessed that either. I would th- I th- matter of fact, I thought that was a bomb. I did too. I did too. <laughs> I think um, you're I think you're uh you're confusing that with Exodus. <laughs> true. Yes. That was that was a bomb. Yes. yes. So but I don't I don't think the studio was happy with how he managed that large of a budget because when mother came around, he's only getting thirty million. Now this one it's considered a bomb, but it did make forty four million, forty four and a half million at the theaters. I found this uh, statistic very interesting. So are you guys familiar with cinema score? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. For those, for those that aren't cinema score, if you, if you think about a rating system, cinema score is supposed to basically pull viewers when they come out of a film and go, Hey, great it. Right. Is it an a plus a B minus, et cetera. So this is cin- a poll. It's a polling thing. Like remember yeah. like when we, yeah. Yeah. So cinema score people coming out of the mother, even though it made 44 million, it holds a cinema score grade of F. It's one of the lowest in history. Um, and then a few years later, he comes out with uh, a film that I think put Brendan Fraser back in the spotlight, which is The Whale. It's made on a very modest budget of $3 million, but ends up making $54 million, which is significant considering this is sort of like a pandemic era film. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, technically, Technically, you could say he's only had two bombs financially in his career, which is kind of crazy to me. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think Aronofsky to me is a guy who works better in the kind of I don't want to say micro budget, but in the smaller budget films. Um, he and like Robert Rodriguez kind of swim those lanes where it just seems like they make money stretch so far. Like there's nothing crazy about the whale. But I hear about it, and I'm like, it can only cost $3 million? Like, I didn't even think you could get, like, m- a film made for less than, like, $10 million now. So yeah. it's kind of crazy. And I'm sure, like, Brendan Fraser probably cost nothing and got some points on the back end or whatever. But, yeah, it's 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 crazy that it got 20 times its budget back in return. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, for most of the movies, he ends up doing the screenplay for as well. So Pi, Requiem for a Dream, The Fountain, Noah, Mother. Uh, stuff outside of his work. He did do a screenplay for 2002's Below, which is this little submarine film. 
He's also oh, yeah. I've yeah. seen that. I've seen that. Yeah, it's not bad. He not bad. most recently did a TV series um, and was the creator of it called Limitless with Chris Hemsworth. I think it was a National Geographic thing that was on Disney Plus. Oh yeah. Yep. So for this film, he gets screenplay and story by, but you also get a story by credit with Ari Handel, um, who worked with him on this one and Noah and also the Limitless TV series. The only other person I kind of want to mention behind the screens is cinematography Matthew Labatic. Uh, Oscar. It's, uh, let me do the Jose thing here. It's Labatic. Labatic. Okay. There you go. Matthew Labatic. <laughs> yeah. So Oscar nominee for best cinematography for Black Swan. Uh, which was another Aronofsky Aronofsky film, and uh, most recently, A Star Is Born in 2018, yeah. and and he's mostly worked with Darren Aronofsky. But if you look at his filmography, very busy guy. But he's you know the year that he was working on The Fountain, he also did cinematography for Iron Man in 2006. No, Inside Man. Oh, Inside Man. That's right. He yeah. did Iron Man in 2008. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Um, and also has worked with, you know, folks like Spike Lee because around 2008 as well, he did Miracle at uh, St. Anna. Mm. So let's turn our attention to the people in front of the camera. Uh, I, I really only want to mention three people. and We'll start with Hugh Jackman. Same question I usually ask when we talk about, you know, the people um, associated with these. Where do you guys land on Hugh Jackman? I'll start with you, Brad. I mean, are, are you hot and cold on him? Uh, a little bit. Um, I'm not much of a musical guy and Hugh Jackman is a guy who dips his toes in a lot of musicals and he's like a very theatrical actor mm-hmm. and, but he also dips his toes also with like Wolverine. Uh, you know, I think his performance in Logan is very underrated. I think Logan is almost a perfect superhero film. Um, I, I do like him. I think he, I think he is really good and stuff and like van helsing is one of the worst films i've ever seen in my entire life <laughs> yes um yeah. you know he's also in the film troy we're gonna have to do this at some point in time you're gonna say movie, movie 43, 43. Yeah. he's in that but his so straight up one of the best performances in a film i've ever seen is prisoners like Agreed. his performance in prisoners yes. is just insanely good um so yeah, I, I mean, I like him. He's fine. You know, he's hard to separate from Wolverine, but I'm cool. I like his performance as Wolverine. I'm going back and watching all of them, and it's funny to see him in the original X Men. Like he's kind of tiny, and by the time we're like in yeah. other stuff, I mean he's just a hulking beast. So yeah. Anyway. Okay. What about you, Sammy? Uh, let me ask you this question because we talk about this on a regular basis about the concept of the movie star is, is Hugh Jackman a modern movie star? I think he is. Yeah. I don't think he has quite the swag or quite the, the pull that, uh, like a Tom Cruise does. I think that's, that's a whole other level, but I do think he is one of the few stars left that, uh, right now that, that are kind of working. Uh, I think he gets, and like most stars, he kind of gets a lot of pushback on his choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, he gets teased and made fun of and criticized and stuff, but I think he takes risk to be honest with you. I mean, the Wolverine character has given him a lot. There's no doubt about it, but I, th- I like the risk he's taken and he's worked with great directors, Christopher Nolan, uh, uh, what's his name that we just, you just mentioned prisoners, Villeneuve. Uh, Villeneuve. Yeah. He works with great directors and he takes risk, even reminiscence, which was a pretty awful film from 2021. It's a risky movie. And I like that he, you know, I like that he takes risk and 
you know, I love the greatest showman. Troy, I know you did too. Loved um, it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I've seen some of Eddie, the Eagle. I seem to like that. Uh, Ooh, Eddie, he's good he's at Eddie. Really the Eagle. good at yeah. that. Yeah. So he's a, he's an interesting actor. He's good in real steel, which is a really quirky kind of odd, like, I don't know what it's supposed to be. It's a I sports guess. movie. It's it rock'em sock'em robot. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a sports movie for the CGS set, I guess. Yeah, but, it, but he's heartbreaking in it at moments. Yeah, and uh, I, you know, this this film, I'll just say it flat out. This film is a reminder that given the right material, he can uh, he can really bring it. I agree. I, if I go through his filmography, I will see these films. Um, you you guys have already mentioned it. I mean. Uh, greatest Showman, Prisoners, uh, Prestige. He, he's so good. And and even in the film we're going to talk about tonight. But then he'll also do some of the films that I just absolutely hate, Van Helsing being one of them. Yeah, that one that one was a bad choice. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I see it on paper. It looked like a good idea. And yeah. I got to be honest with you. When I saw the promotional material, I was like, okay, I'm in. It looks pretty cool. And then I saw the trailer. I was like, yikes, I'm out. <laughs> Well, it, so 2006, when he did The Fountain, listen to this. These are all the films that came out. And Brad, you've already mentioned one of them. So in 2006, we have X-Men Last Stand, Scoop, yeah. The Prestige, Flushed Away, Happy Feet, and The Fountain. All those are 2006 releases. What is Scoop? I don't remember Scoop. Oh, that's the which. That's good. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. Woody Allen. Woody Allen. Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he he did get a nomination in 2013. I think it's the only one that he got for for Les Mis, which another musical. And and I I like that term. I mean, he he truly is a theatrical actor. Yeah. Uh, but man, when when he brings his performances to the screen, I I think I think he is a movie star. I I I agree with you. He doesn't have the pull that Tom Cruise does. But he but did. Very, very few people do. True. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, I can only arguably think maybe like yeah. two or three people have the pull. <laughs> yeah. In, mo- in modern era right now. Yeah. There might be two to three people that can pull in people worldwide. Yeah. Well, the, the pedigree in front of the camera doesn't stop there because we get Rachel Weiss um, as Isabel or um, Izzy. Izzy. Yeah. Yes. I, I think a lot of people from popular cinema might know her from the mummy franchise. Leading up into this film, she had done Constantine with Keanu Reeves from 2005, The Constant Gardener, which she won an Oscar for Best Actress. And just as a side note, she would get nominated again in 2018 for Best Actress in a Supporting Role for The Favorite, which I think she's phenomenal in. Um, And then she does The Fountain in 2006 and follows that up the next year with a Wong Kar Wai film, uh, My Blueberry Nights, in 2007. Yeah. I, I don't know about you guys. I, I, I really like her. I, I think um, in terms of actresses, she's, again, another one. I get super excited when I see her name in the credits because I think I think she can do everything. She can do the comedy. She can do the action. Loved her in the, you know, the Mummy series, but I love her dramatic stuff. And and I got to say, I, I, I love The Favorite. I thought she was fantastic. She stole every scene that she was in in that film. Mm. I like The Favorite a lot, too. Yeah. Yeah, I was sad. She's uh, She's great. She's a, she's just flat great. I mean, I, I, I like her a lot. I'm always happy to see her and, uh, it doesn't hurt that she, I think she's gorgeous as well. Oh, agreed. Agreed. The last name <laughs> I want to throw out there is, uh, Ellen Burstyn as Dr. Lillian Guzzetti. <laughs> if you're a horror fan, you'll know her from 1973's The Exorcist. Never heard of it. Yeah. Little film that, uh, <laughs> did pretty well in the seventies. And I want to say it was her performance 
in Requiem for a Dream that I think uh, got her the next gig for The Fountain because I think Darren really liked working with her. And another one, just a huge resume. She's been around for a long time. Um, just an amazing actress. And uh, I, I always I always like these late cycle performances that she, she gave, especially Requiem for a Dream. I mean, say what you will yeah. about that film. And her performance in that film alone will break your soul. <laughs> it's so... It, it just crushes you, but it's so amazing. Yeah. And I think I she's going to be in the new exorcist as well. Believer or whatever it's called. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yep. She's still going. Yep. Well, let's talk about the production and development. So you hinted at this, Brad, um, director, Darren Aronofsky sought to produce the fountain after his release, Re- Requiem for a dream in 2000 in April, 2001, he entered negotiations with Warner Brothers Pictures and Village Roadshow Pictures to direct the then untitled film with actor Brad Pitt in the lead role. So he was the first one that um, signed originally for it. And basically how they got Pitt was they showed him the screenplay to the fountain and then also showed him Requiem for a Dream. And that persuaded Brad to say, hey, I want to work on this project. And gave him copious amounts of marijuana and said, let's make this work. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. And then in 2001, Kate Blanchett entered talks to join the project. Um, and they decided to delay it because at the time she had a pregnancy. And so she was giving um, birth to her child in December 2001. So they said, okay, we can start production summer of 2002. But what had happened in June of 2002 is Warner Brothers had met with Aronofsky, also the producer Eric Watson, and they were saying, hey, look, the the budget, it's escalating, right? It's getting huge. And they were threatening to cease the project unless a co-financer was found. And they eventually found Regency Enterprises for assistance to help with the budget. So the film officially titled The Fountain was greenlit and approved for production with a budget of $70 million. That was its original production budget. And it was going to be co-financed by Warner Brothers and New Regency. Um, preparation for production of the fountain. Now, again, this is the first pass cost $18 million. So they had already spent $18 million on getting the Brad Pitt, Kate Blanchett version ready to go. However, Pitt, um, who requested some changes to the screenplay and he didn't get those changes made, decided to leave the project seven weeks before the first day of shooting. He turned around and went to star in Wolfgang Peterson's Troy. With the studio threatening to shut down the project. I questioned his sexuality throughout that whole film. Yeah, I guess. So the studio is threatening to shut down the project at this point. Aronofsky sent the script to Russell Crowe, thinking he could get him as a replacement to Pitt. Crowe um, was kind of worn out from doing Master and the Commander, said he wasn't ready to, to jump back into this thing. And so they ended up shutting the production down. And I thought this was really interesting. They ended up paying... Um, Kate Blanchett, she got some compensation for her time working on the film. So that's on top of the 18 million. And uh, the Australian crew who was working on this ended up getting fired after the project was halted. Sets built for the production of the film, including a 10 story Mayan temple, were eventually auctioned off in addition to props and other items. So that's even before we get to the numbers that you were talking about, Brad. And then Mm -hmm. in February of 2004, Warner Brothers decided to bring the project back to life. And they went after Hugh Jackman um, to basically replace Brad Pitt. And the 
the film got greenlit, but at this time around, they were only going to give it a $35 million budget, not the original 70. And then they ended up getting Rachel Weiss um, to kind of fill the Kate Blanchett role. And, and this is crazy. So the film had its world premiere at the 63rd Venice Film Festival on September 2nd of 2006. And I, I find this amazing. So you hear, you hear these stories about as soon as it's done, the film received a 10-minute standing ovation at a public screening. But during the critic screening, there were several critics that were booing during the fountain. They hated it. So there you go. There's, there's a little history and production on the fountain. So I, I think it ended up costing the, the studio a little bit more money um, than even the budget that you see in terms of a final product. Now, one of the things we've been kind of talking about even before we get to sharing thoughts on the film is is just maybe pontificating a little bit on, hey, why did this thing kind of falter? I mean, Aronofsky at this point is coming off of Requiem for a Dream, has a pretty big idea. He's got some good stars, um, high pedigree and caliber of stars in front of the camera. And I'll start with you, Sammy. It's 2006. This thing comes out. It doesn't do so hot. Why do you think so? Is it just the taste of the audience or... People just didn't get it. Was the the marketing or the theatrical trailer not good enough? I mean, what, where where do you fall on this one? Well, I think it's a couple of factors. I think this one got a lot of bad buzz uh, behind the scenes when it was being made. I mean, um, there was a lot. I, I was reading a lot of movie magazines and mm-hmm. and websites back in this time, and I remember folks were excited about a new Arnofsky film because he had a bit of a cult following after Re- Requiem for a Dream. And, uh, you know, when people hear something goes from 75 million to 35 million and there's reshoots and, and all these complications and stuff, you know, movies now that doesn't necessarily mean a movie, a bomb Titanic had the same problems. It ballooned, uh, excessively. And everybody's like, this thing is going to bomb so hard and yada, yada, yada. And, and, you know, the, the story has been told there. Right. So it doesn't necessarily always mean that, but then the film comes out and I think it's just. You know, honestly, I think it's just too heady of a movie for it to be a big success. Now, I say that, and I realize that there's some heady films out there that have been big successes. Some films that have been considered the greatest films of all time. 2001 comes to mind, and there's definitely some parallels here with some of the thought process in 2001 and this, the way it kind of just kind of stands outside of existence and kind of exist into its own kind of world. But I think the movie's just, I think it's just too heavy. I think it's just too out there for a general audience. And I think people just were not ready for it at the time. If you look at the films that were big hits around that time that Brad mentioned, a lot of that stuff is very escapist entertainment. Now there's nothing wrong with that. I love escapist entertainment as much as anybody, but I don't think people necessarily show up in droves sometimes to see things that make them question things. Mm-hmm. And I think this film is, is one that makes you ponder a lot of things. I don't think people like thinking about their mortality. I don't think people like thinking about terminal illnesses. <laughs> I don't think people like trying to figure out the meaning of it all. And I think this movie is asking all of those questions around a central love story that's actually very sweet. This is a gentleman who truly loves his wife. Um and is this is a movie about grieving. I mean, this is a heavy movie. I I, I joked with you guys, you know, 4 or 5 hours ago when we were texting and stuff. I mean, I watched this and 
I don't know if Requiem for a Dream makes me feel worse or if this one makes me feel worse. <laughs> uh requiem makes me feel worse but okay <laughs> well i mean no i mean i see i mean yeah. but it, it's, it's just dealing with very complicated human issues yeah, right yeah no i get that one of the things that makes us human and that i find completely fascinating about us as a species is that we know we're gonna die you know most species do not know they wake up every day they don't can ponder well at least as far as we know they don't sit around and ponder existence or what they're going to purchase or if they need to take out a 30-year loan and <laughs> and think about all these things in that context, right? Yeah. They don't do that. That's what humans do. That's what we've done. So I think people don't like to to do that. And then when you ask human beings to to process that kind of information, it can be very heavy. And I think people just don't want to do that. And honestly, as much as I do like this film, I like it for the beauty of it. I think it's a very touching love story. I think it's uh, very well acted, especially by Hugh Jackman, who does a great job in the movie of portraying what it's like to have your heart completely broken. Um, I mean, there's moments in this where, you know, I'm just I'm in the room's full of dust. I mean, it's just like, you know, that scene where he's trying to tattoo his finger, mm -hmm. the bed. It's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. It's just heartbreaking. Um, I just, I, I think the movie's it's, it's just a lot to handle, but at the same time, rewatching it, Brad sent a message to us earlier saying he's going to rewatch the last hour. I got to admit, the last fifteen minutes, I'm like, okay, I mean, whatever you're smoking, Darren, go ahead and keep on smoking it, brother, because I mean, it just he just kind of goes for it in the end, and it's really just a personal vision. Does it make a lot of sense? I don't know. I really don't know, dude. But right. I know that I think it's very beautiful to look at. Well, well, we'll get to the dissection of it, but you, you basically are attributing it to the audience gets a sense of what the film's about, and that's not what they want to see in November. No, I don't think it is. Honestly, I don't think, I don't know of a lot of films. Well, maybe there are, but I can't think of a lot of films that are massive hits that deal with terminal illness. I guess there are some. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I feel like. Love Story, maybe? <laughs> Steel Magnolias? I mean, that was. Still, yeah, Magnolias, yeah. I mean, that's that's a part of the story. I don't know if it's primarily dealt with that. Yeah, I just don't think people really want to show up for Philadelphia. Mm. I was thinking of the Michael Keaton film, My Life. Oh, I think man, was what a, it was called. No. <laughs> yeah, I went to the theaters and saw that. Yeah, yeah, and that did okay, if I remember correctly. I'm not. Yeah, I mean, um, it wasn't a huge hit, but I, I know, I know, like like 15 million dollar budget probably made 30 million or something. Yeah. I just don't think people really, and again, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my film history is all backwards and everything else, and I can't think it through, but I just don't think people really like that kind of stuff. And then sometimes it's just timing. Um, this movie looks like a hard sell on the, on the surface, too. Um, the the marketing for it, I remember, like, what times it's set in. He's a conquistador at some points. He's ball-headed, <laughs> and, and he's meditating at other points. In other points, he's he's a doctor. uh uh, you know, it, it's just a hard sell. And for film buffs, I don't think it's a hard sell. But right. for a general audience, I just feel like it's i feel like it's a tough pill to swallow. Okay. What about you, Brad? What, what, where do you think it fell short? Yeah, I just think it's a simple marketing thing. I, I, I think you're trying to cut together. I watched a trailer, but, like, you watch that trailer, and it, I mean, this movie just looks all over the place. It looks scattershot. And, and I don't know if there's, like, you can distill this film down into two minutes to to sell it to people. I think it's, that's an impossible task. 
And so then you start going on word of mouth. And I think, you know, you have a buddy who sees it and they say, you can't really watch it without pretty much thinking about your own mortality. And you're like, well, I don't want to do that. I want to go see happy feet or I want to see something else. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, it's just, this is not a, a light film. It's a very <clears throat> Stanley Kubrick inspired film and you're not getting Stanley Kubrick. You're getting Darren Aronofsky in his third film. And yes, Requiem for a Dream was unique and different. And but we're talking about six years later, so that shine is kind of worn off a bit. And you know, it's sure we know directors in 2006. We know everything about them, but the average movie person doesn't, moviegoer doesn't know a director from whoever. And so someone says, "Oh, this guy directed Requiem for a Dream." I've never even heard of that movie. Um, <laughs> so yeah. I don't know if like at this point in time, Aronofsky had the pull with his name. So people weren't even associating him with Requiem, but it just comes down simply for me. It's just like, how in the hell do you market this thing? Um, and I'm sure they didn't have a crazy marketing budget because I think that's where you maybe try to save some money because it's an impossible task. Like, how do you, how do you market this film to the average movie person? Cause you need hardcore people will go. We see it to the tune of about $10 million, but you have to have way more than that to maybe be a successful film. So, yeah, it's, it's crazy. I think what, so his filmography is interesting for the, the casual moviegoer. This is their first Darren Aronofsky film. So most of them didn't catch pie. It, you know, I mean, that even, even on home video, I don't think a lot of people caught that one. Requiem for a dream gets a little notoriety, but for the average moviegoer, this is their first Darren Aronofsky film. And if yeah. you go and watch that trailer, you do get the, you know, I always thought it was the Mayan thing that maybe turned people off, but Apocalypto came out that same year. And it, mm -hmm. it, I think it came out a month later. It was later in the year. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it was a huge hit. Yeah. Um, but I, I think the trailer sells this as three different times and it almost looks like a time travel movie mm -hmm. with science fiction elements to it. And if your casual moviegoer is like, oh, that, that looks really interesting. I'm going to go to it. I, for one, think that anybody who walked in this film did not see this as a film about mortality. As a matter of fact, I think everybody was confused because they they on its surface goes, well, wait a minute, you've got this story in, that takes place in this older time, then you got a present day, and then you got a future, and they're sitting there trying to figure out how all these stories kind of come together in the sequential version of it. And I've, I've even heard there's fan edits where they put this thing in chronological order to try and figure it out because they, they're, they're trying to think about this film in a linear perspective. Uh, and and when, you, when you treat it like that, I think it's a mess. Um, when, when you think about it in that context. So I think it, if, if word of mouth, the casual moviegoers coming out of this, they're going, I, di I didn't really like that film that much on its initial release because it wasn't the time travel sort of action adventure thing that the trailer kind of gives you the vibe to. And it ends up, you know, you either being very depressing or very confusing to somebody. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you look at that trailer and at one minute you think it's an action movie with conquistadors. Yeah. The next minute you think it's a science fiction movie. And then when you go see the movie, it 
it's none of those things. It's neither of those. <laughs> none of it. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, again, if, if you want to get your mind fixed, wait a month and then Mel Gibson gives you Apocalypto, which really is, you know, a, a very interesting kind of uh, dramatic action film, more or less. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that movie, that movie is, man, one of the most purest action films I've ever seen. I mean, yeah. that's. Uh, anyway, that, that's another conversation. <laughs> I agree. Uh, well, hey, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, let's dive into this thing and dissect it and share all of our thoughts on it. And um, we'll, we'll see where we land on our, on our, I don't know, our thoughts and feelings of this one. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Time for refreshment. Refreshment. For your enjoyment, there's hot, fresh popcorn. Tempting, delicious hot dogs. And so many kinds of ice cream. And of course, sparkling, delicious, ice-cold Coca-Cola for everybody at the refreshment counter now. Remember, your favorite snack will taste especially good with world-famous ice-cold Coca-Cola. References have been made to Yates, Hawthorne, Sophocles, Descartes, Goethe, Schopenhauer, Melville, Hemingway, and others. Its beauty moved Charlie Chaplin to tears. The Saturday Review called it an extraordinary masterpiece that challenges some of the assumptions which have dominated serious writing for a hundred years. picture of the decade. It may turn out to be the film of the century. Stanley Kubrick's 2001, A Space Odyssey. From MGM. We're back, Brad. I'm going to start with you. This was your pick. Um, how and you've seen this, I'm sure, plenty of times. Mm, yeah. So how how was this viewing? How how to go for you? It's funny. There's certain films that you watch as you mature as an adult, and they you can see them much differently than your initial viewing. When I first saw this, I had gotten this on DVD from. Netflix when it came out and I watched it and I, I know my initial feeling about it was I probably hated it because I was coming in at it through the lens of, I want to see a science fiction film. Did you, it's not a science fiction film. So your first showing was never theatrical then? No, I did not see this theatrical. Um, I don't think it was, it played long enough and I would have seen multiple other films before this one. Um, so I watched it now, um, and, and, you know, it, it definitely hits a lot different thinking about your own mortality, uh, your, your spouse and their death and how you would handle that, which is, you know, not the most fun thing to think about. Um, but 
you know, I I love a film that a when you see it at different points in times of your life, it hits you differently. This one is definitely one of those. Um, I I like this film quite a bit. I, I like it for the think piece that it is. I, it's almost impossible for me to watch this and not think about stuff as I'm watching it. Like it, it's a film that I think just ignites so much thought in your own mind that you kind of get lost in your own head while you're watching this thing. Um, and, and I'm sure like as a good piece of art, like Aronofsky succeeded with that because this thing really makes you think about yourself um, but it's almost an impossible film to watch as a film because I don't really know there is a film here, but I think it's more of like a think, like a think piece in a way. But yeah, it's like, I, I remember hearing people say, talking about the time travel aspect of it and just thinking about how wrong people are like, and I hate to like say people's opinion on films is wrong, but like, they're wrong. Like there's not like the conquistador stuff is not, that's a, that's a fiction within this film. Like it's right, a it's book. The book. Yeah. Um, and so, but yeah, you know, everything that's going on, I, I really like, it's a pretentious as hell film. Right. So I, I am pre uh, disposed to, to like it. Um, you know, I, Hugh Jackman and Rachel Weisz is like their relationship really feels genuine. Um, I do think, a part of me gets a little bit fed up with Hugh Jackman's antics about his dying wife. Like, like I get it. Like when your spouse is going to die from cancer, you're going to be in a torn up state, but I think he takes it a little too far, like choking people out and doing some stuff. You're like, dude, you're not the only one who's ever had a spouse die. Like we gotta, like when she's saying stuff at the funeral and he's like walking off, I'm like, stop being a baby. Like I, I get it. But like, just stand there for a minute and let her talk and don't make us like, don't make a scene. Uh, but besides that, I, I really enjoy it. Um, I watched it one and a half times. Cause I just, I think the last hour of this one really, really is uh pretty spectacular. Um, and I noticed like just random things. I wrote in my notes, like there's a lot of people just looking up at light in this movie, like just like looking up at light and like, yeah sure that has a meaning about something and then like this time i wrote about the guy has all these rings on his arm and we're always talking about like the tree of life of course you measure the 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 age of a tree by the rings and i'm like is that mean something like so there's all these things you're trying to like put your thoughts into is like is there a meaning behind this is there meaning behind this but but of course you know it it might not but you can you can start formulating all these hypotheses with this film and i just think that's the sign of like a good piece of art. Like, is it a good film? I don't know, but it's like a good piece of art to me because it makes me think. Okay. What about you, Sammy? How, how did this viewing go? Uh, it went pretty much similar to the last viewing I had. I'd only seen this once before. I remember liking it. And I remember saying that I, you know, I think I was, no, I wasn't podcasting yet. I don't think I started doing that until 2008. Jeez, what was that life like? (laughs) (laughs) But I remember being online and saying that I liked it. And I remember people, a lot of people did. And I went back and looked at my letterbox history uh, because I rechecked this in. 
and you know you can go in there and look at your friends and 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 see what they all gave this film and the majority of the people on the on this film gave it three stars or above so this film is is well loved it's very interesting to me how well loved it is it, you know it always seems like it was this you know huge bomb and everything but i mean it was financially but i mean the film's yeah. gained quite a reputation so my, my my experience with it this time it was pretty much similar i feel the same way about it as i felt the last time i i think it is flawed um i think that you know hugh jackman's cent the central character here is a very selfish character um Brad kind of alluded to that a little bit with some of the ways he reacts and stuff. Obviously, he's going through a really hard time. You can't really judge anybody when they're going through something like that because you don't know how you'd react. But at the same time, you do get the sense that he's very selfish. He's reading a book that she wrote. He's putting himself in as the hero in that book. I mean, these are kind of narcissistic, kind of selfish behaviors. But he does love his wife. Um, but you have to question sometimes watching it. Does he love his wife as much as he loves the mystery of trying to solve his wife's problem? Now, I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not going to go off some deep end here of theory and everything else, but he becomes so obsessed that, you know, again, it's a good thing the lab has no HR department or <laughs> anything like that, because, you know, he would definitely be fired. He definitely has a boss who understands him as much as you possibly can. And if you've ever, you know, I've been a boss for many years, if you have an employee who's going through something like this, you have to be very open to communication with that person because that person could be going through a really tough time and you have to be open and let them get that out. They have to be able to communicate. Um, so the, you know, that that's here and stuff, but I do feel like his character is very selfish in a way. Um, but I mean, they show that right from the beginning, right? Like he's more obsessed with the cure than he is with her. She wants him to go on a walk. He, he chooses to go left instead of going right. Is it is that selfish or is it his inability to process or handle what's going on with those events? It's a little bit of, I, I can see that side too. It's a little bit of both. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's, I think death, you know, one of the taglines of this film is death is an act of creation. Mm -hmm. I think whether we like it as human beings or not, death is... Oh, don't worry. They say the word death and creation about 1,700 times in this movie. <laughs> don't worry. Yeah. But I think death is something that as human beings, as we all experience it, it actually matures us and helps us grow. It's not something we like to talk about. It's not something we like to deal with, right? I don't think any of us would sit here and say we like to, even if it's a family dog or a cat or anything, we don't like to deal with it. It's very hard. Right. But it, you grow as a person. In my opinion, that's an act of creation. You, you change, you develop, you move on emotionally. I think for me, this character has never had anything bad happen to him. And he has this situation that he can't control. He's a control person. He, he has to be able to fix this. He's fixed everything in his life. More than likely, he's always been able to fix things. Yeah, I, I, I think that comes through in that line where he says death is a disease. Yes. And, and like anything else, I mean, it has a cure. And so he, mm -hmm. he thinks about things in, in very much like problem, solution-oriented mindset, right? Yep. And I think, you know, that can turn you – I don't know if – maybe selfish isn't the right word, but certainly self-motivated um, to, a, to, a, to a fault, uh, to a fault that he's not seeing – that the reality of life is moments and time. 
there's not really any guarantees for any of us at any given time of any given day. And he's not stopping. I mean, really, for me, the, the basic principle of this whole movie is stop and appreciate what you got because it'll be gone before you know it. If not, you'll be gone before you know it. <laughs> appreciate every single moment. And this movie's very much more heady than that. And it takes some big epic approaches to it with a tree of life and, and all this religious stuff and Mayans and conquistadors and all this craziness, uh, which I don't think is bad. I think visually it's a lot of fun. But I think at the soul, at the center and the soul of this film is basically that principle of life is in the small moments. It's in the moments of taking a walk with your wife in the snow. It's in the moments of laying in bed and putting your arm around your wife or your husband. It's in the moments of stopping and just appreciating what's there. And I don't know that what Aronofsky's, I, I think the movie is a mess. I, I, I think I've said that already, but I, I do think it's a mess. I would love to see a director's cut of this of some sort. I don't think there's one that exists. Um, but I would love to see what his original thoughts were on this. I know he recorded a commentary because Warner Brothers wouldn't let him put one on the disc. Mm -hmm. The original DVD, Warner Brothers said no. <laughs> uh, I guess that was the kind of relationship they had at that point. And uh, he did one for his website that you could download and listen to. So I think there's a commentary track out there. So I'd like to listen to that and hear what he has to say. Kind of goes back to Brad in the opening saying, Aronofsky, sometimes he does feel a little pretentious, a little, you know, he likes the smell of his own shit a little too much. Sometimes I do agree with that. He does come off as elitist sometimes, but I think ultimately similar to what Brad said as well, what this movie makes me do is it makes me ponder. It makes me sit and think it makes me wonder. And I've come to believe that the whole last 15 minutes and everything else is basically the death of the Hugh Jackman character that it, it's, it's, it's his death. And I literally I, spiritually like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We'll dude, get into that. Cause I have a different theory on that. Yeah, dude, I don't know. Uh, I just know that by the time I get to the end of this film, I feel both enlightened and relieved. Okay. Uh, I feel like it, it told the story it had to tell. It was heartbreaking. I felt really bad for him, but it was the process he had to get through. And it really does feel like, you know, grief, the movie, it really does feel like you're, you're, you're questioning every single thing you do. You know, I'm going through a grieving process right now too. You know, I, you know, some folks know and everything else, I'm yeah. not really saying anything publicly, but obviously, you know, I'm going through some difficulties in my personal life right now. And you grieve the things that you used to have, you grieve them and you sit there and you, and you question everything. You question, did I do this right? Did I do that right? Was this me? Was that that person? Was that this? What did I do wrong? What did they do wrong? You, you, you can beat yourself up. I think if you're a real human being, if you really care about somebody and care about things, you really, you really question every single thing you do. And I think this movie kind of hits home in those moments for me of appreciation of, of time. I mean, I, I've always told my kids, you know, priest, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about yesterday. You can't do anything about that. Just worry about right now. There's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. I know our lives are, you know, created around six-year car loans, 30-year home loans, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. But ultimately, you have no Don't control. Don't get a six-year car loan. That's a bad, that's 
<laughs> investment I guy over here. No, but I, I mean, it, it, it brings up a good point that, I mean, as humans, especially in, I mean, as in consumerism, mm-hmm. we're not supposed to think about mortality. We're, we're supposed to think about the next purchase and how long you're going to pay that off. And, yeah. you know, what, what are you going to do when you pay off your house and you're going to get the next house? You're going to sell that? I mean, yeah, there, yeah, yeah. there is no, no such thing as mortality until the insurance guy comes around, tries to sell you a life insurance policy, right? Yeah. I mean, we're, we're taught not to think about our own deaths yeah. and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's healthy. I don't think you should walk around all day thinking I'm going to die any day now. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> you should do not. that. Yeah. Yeah. But I do think that human beings, like I said in the beginning, we're, we're significant in that way. We're, we're unique and that we know we aren't going to be around forever. We know that we're going to leave things behind. And we have an opportunity to make an impact right, to others' lives in that short amount of time we have. And I think that's what the, I think that's what the arc of this movie is for me. Yeah. Um, I, it's funny. I, I think I told you guys this story. Aronofsky, as a director, for some reason, has this just crazy profound effect on, like, the guys in this household. So... Uh, it, it, I, have I told you guys a story about Cameron's viewing of the whale? Have we talked about this? No, we haven't. Okay. So not on the podcast at least. Okay. So the, no, I, I haven't heard the story. No. All right. Well, the, the Cameron, uh, who's my son gets really interested in films sometimes in specific titles. And, and I don't, I don't know what it is. It'll be, it'll be an actor. It'll be the subject or something of that nature. And when he was reading about the whale, he's like, Oh, I, I really want to see that. And every time we thought we were going to go see in the theater, something came up. And then finally it's like, Hey, it's coming out on Blu-ray. So pre-booked it, it comes out. So him, my wife and I, we sit down, he was so excited to see this film. And what's, what's amazing for those of you who've seen it, you get, you get to the back end of it. And there is this sequence. I don't want to spoil it, but you, you see, this thing happened to Brendan Fraser's character, especially in the last five minutes of the film in, in the last 15 minutes are very emotional. I mean, it is, it is kitchen sink drama. Yeah. He turns into pizza, the hut all of a sudden. Starts eating himself. <laughs> no, really no, 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 no. <laughs> so I, I'm just in this film a hundred percent. I know Tabitha is too. And I, I'm hearing these noises. So the way we're sitting, like Cameron's in the recliner and I can't really see him because his back's to me a little bit. Cause he's up front. I'm over on the couch with, with Tabitha and I'm, I'm hearing these noises from him as the film kind of gets to this crescendo at the end of it. And as soon as the film's over, then I finally understand what I'm hearing over here. And Cameron is sobbing like he is uncontrollably sobbing and he, he can't catch a breath. And we're like, Oh my God, are you okay? And then it gets worse. And he, he's like, I don't know where this came from and it's upsetting him and everything else. And he's like, Oh my God, I love that film. I've never seen a film affect him that way. It was the craziest thing. And to this day, we, we kind of make fun of him for it. <laughs> We're like, hey, you want to watch the whale, right? Yeah. 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 That's just how our family works, right? But it, it Aronofsky, like that film, just, I, I think uh, it made me appreciate movies a little bit more to see that affect somebody else. Uh, and I, I know Cameron now is like, oh, I, I didn't know a film could do that to me. And it's one of his favorites. So go back to 2006. Um, I did not see this thing theatrically. I stayed away from it. And it took me, I think, to 2007 before I could watch it. I lost my father in 2004. And 
the first time I saw this film, I didn't have the reaction that Cameron did, but it did break me. Yeah. Um, because when Hugh Jackman and you're you're talking about like his performance, Brad, and you're like, oh my gosh, this oh this boy, seems like here it comes. I'm sorry, I forgot. No, about no, 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 no. It's okay. I I I think people would have that reaction to it as an outsider to look at that and say, oh, that's selfish. That's you know, that's just over dramatic. Oh, this guy, you know, should just shut up at his wife's funeral and et cetera. But the thing that the fountain always reminds me of is Hugh Jackman's performance is 100% spot on to, I think, at least my experience going through my father's illness in his last year. So to give some background, I mean, he ended up having, I think it was like eight different heart attacks over the year in and out of hospitals to where his last 30 days were in a skilled nursing center and you're just watching him deteriorate. And while you're trying to go through that um, and then also maintain a family life and your job and everything else, you, you start to go, Oh man, it's wearing on you. Right. And and when you get to like that 11th or 12th month and all of a sudden you're like, okay, well, when I'm not working, I'm in this nursing center and I'm feeding my father ice chips and just trying to make him as comfortable as possible. And I remember my last night with my dad, this is gonna be terrible, but I get off the road and I'm like, man, I'm, I, it's a Sunday evening and I get to spend a few hours with him before I have to drive another an hour and a half to go home to the family. And I think it was that weekend we just told him, Hey, Tabitha's pregnant. Um, we're going to have a boy. And then that evening I was so tired. And so, uh, we watched super Dave, uh, that, uh, super day Osborne super, film. super Dave Osborne. Yeah. Yeah. We're watching that. And I'm sitting on the floor of this nursing center. He's asking for, for water. And at this point I'm like, well, we can only give you ice ch- chips. And I was getting aggravated cause he's getting aggravated at me and I'm getting more aggravated because I got to go- drive an hour and a half. And then by the time I get home, it's going to be like 1am. Then I get up at 5am and hit the road to go to like Missouri to train a bunch of other people. Mm-hmm. And I was just so angry at the whole scenario and I didn't know what to do. And I, I remember like that last evening, it was just kind of uncomfortable where I'm like, I wish I could help him out, but I can't. And then I'm getting mad at him for asking for things where the nurse said he's not supposed to have this. And then the next morning as I'm driving to go to Missouri, I get the phone call. First thing it says your dad passed. And then when you go to the skilled nursing center and you see him there, there's just all this anger and, and you just have these emotions you can't control. And I remember being very angry and couldn't figure it out and handle it. And so to me, the fountain, if, if you've lost somebody that's close to you and you see that Hugh Jackman performance, I think that's one of the best things about the film because he gets everything right about somebody who has had to deal with a loved one that has gone through this deterioration for an extended period of time. Now, the good thing about that is I remember all of these moments with my father of just being able to say these things that I never got a chance to say to him, but knowing that death is coming, I knew I had to get it out. And we had all of these wonderful moments together in that last year, but it was just him and me in an ICU unit or him and me in a a skilled nursing center. But at the same time, for every one of those moments, there's all these other moments. I'm very ashamed of how I acted because I was very selfish because I didn't know how to handle that. And I would just dive into work or dive into family. And then you would feel worse. 
and guilty over that. Um, and it's taken me years to come to terms with like, that's just that process, man. Um, and what strikes me as just so unique about this film is it has three structures to it, but all of it is taking place in the present day. So the sequences with him and his wife and him and, you know, trying to find the cure, et cetera, that's happening now. The conquistador story is really him reading it and trying to find this connection where his wife has basically made a story that says, Hey, this novel is about a conquistador who's trying to save his queen and then tells him, you've got to finish the last chapter. And then everything that looks science fiction, which happens in the bubble is actually happening in his mind. That's just him trying to process everything and all of that grief, but it's happening at the same time. So one is fictional in a story. One is realistic. And then the science fiction aspects with the actual tree of life going to the star, that is the metaphysical aspect. That's everything that's happening in his head. And when I watched that film, I always call that like his spirit. Yeah. His spirit or, yeah, Yeah. no, I I think that's accurate, but why it's a mess and why that section feels like a mess is because when you're going through that grieving process, when I see that imagery, and I, I see how he's acting. I, I, it takes me back to 2004, that entire year, because he died in November. Mm. And I feel like visually somebody got into my head and went, yeah, this is everything that you were going through that year. And it was amazing to watch it. So every I, I've gotten to the point now where I can watch it and appreciate it and understand it. But I can tell you the first few viewings always got mm. to me and just and crushed me. Um, almost to how Cameron felt when he watched the whale. So Aronofsky has a way of doing that with his art and his filmmaking that I, I'm just so appreciative of. Mm-hmm. And no, I think, I think one of the, one of the things you could say about his films is you feel something after you see all absolutely a hundred percent. And well, it, not only that, but I think he, he understands that humanity is a flawed creation, mm-hmm. right? All of his films deal with, deal with that kind of stuff. Even Noah is dealing well, yeah. with it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this film, I think, succeeds because of two things. Um, The first is Hugh Jackman's performance. I think this is one of the best films he's ever been in. Yeah, he's great. Um, There is an authenticity in his frustration and grief that, as if I were to go back to 2004, I would go, he nails everything, everything. Um, Because I remember having every one of those moments. And then it never, where you, Brad, had that reaction where it felt out of place or extreme. To me, none of it did. Okay. Because I've seen people go through those same reactions. I mean, I remember walking into the the room uh, as soon as my father died, and I just broke down. I couldn't walk anymore. And choke somebody? Well, my mom was trying to help me up, and I was was hitting her and pushing her away because I I just didn't know what to do. Yeah. so there, there is something about that performance that I, while it feels melodramatic, it also feels authentic. Um, and then Aronofsky's visuals, I think, are fantastic. Uh, even in the shots in the present day, I mean, you can look at the 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 conquistador stuff, and you can look at the his um, traveling in a bubble, <laughs> going to the star. I think it's visually impressive, especially the last fifteen twenty minutes. Mm-hmm. But even how he does these long shots and close shots. What I really like about this um, film is the close-up shots 
give this intimacy like you're watching a stage play. And then the long shots give you this Kubrickian feel that is either that's either going to intrigue you or frustrate you to a certain degree. I, I really don't feel like there's a lot of medium shots in here. There's a lot of you're right in it and it feels like a two person stage play between, you know, Hugh Jackman and, and Rachel, or you're getting this grand, almost 2001, a space odyssey feel to it visually from these long shots. Mm-hmm. And I think that is trying to say something in terms of this character and how he's trying to, you know, deal with this concept of death, specifically his wife's death and accepting that and and where that falls in sort of the grand universe of things, but then also being in the moment with his wife. And I think the film beautifully captures that. But I can also see somebody who looks at this and goes, I didn't get it. Um, it doesn't speak to me because uh, they, they might get frustrated with going from something that's very intimate and very close into something um, I, I think Mike from the aisle seat said he didn't like Kubrick because it's very cold and calculating. Yeah. Um, and I, I think there is some of that here and it's, and when you see those two different styles transposed against each other, it, it, it could frustrate you a little bit, mm-hmm. but I, I adore this film. I, I really do. And each viewing, it just gives me a little bit more, uh, I, I don't know how to articulate this, but it, it, it it makes me feel a little bit more comfortable about how I handled my father's death. Wow. Well, I mean, that, I don't know what Brad and I can say to follow that <laughs> yeah, up. I, uh, I kind of feel like a jerk now. Thanks. Troy. Yeah, you should feel like a jerk. It's just, it, this is the great thing about films. Like I said, that's why I said Aronofsky's done something to like the guys in our family, because mm. when, when I think about Cameron and I's experience to two different films in his, in his filmography, we both have this reaction to it that I think, Cameron may say the same thing about the well. He's like, I don't know where that came from, but it opened up something inside of him. And this film kind of does it for me too. Um, but now it feels like when I first saw it, it was like, Oh my gosh, I'm feeling guilty again, frustrated, et cetera. But now when I watch it, it, it almost feels like therapy. Like, Hey, that was just the natural progression of how this was supposed to happen yeah. in order for me to come to the conclusion that, um, I, I've always thought it was weird that the weekend that we told or found out that we were having Cameron was the same weekend that I lost my father. Mm. So when there's that line in the film that death was his father's road to all, like that really speaks to me because when I think about my father's passing, it coincided with me finding out I'm having a son. And so the death and creation thing just happened on the same weekend. Mm. Very interesting. Uh, booty tooth. That's all. <laughs> Thanks. Let's cut, the, cut it just a little bit. Thank you. This is too Peace heavy. Nut. <laughs> all, right. Um, all right. So I, I want to get into a few things. And so I'm going to kick us off. Mm-hmm. So his wife gives him the task of finishing her book. So say, you know, he's got to finish the last chapter, I think. Um, and so we see him get to the tree of life, which I love the scene where it's like down the hallway and you see the silhouette of the Mayan with the sun. I think that's one of the most beautiful shots I've seen in a film, but he gets to the tree of life. He has a wound. And at this point he starts cutting open the tree and puts the sap on himself. Yeah. He puts his knife in the tree. Um, and gets all that. Yeah. The white sap. Yeah. Yeah. I got your sap right here. Okay. Anyway, 
Um, wow, you're really trying to get this to go in an entirely yeah, know, different direction. God, so <laughs> you're much. pushing hard. Uh, and so at first he thinks it's working, and then all of a sudden plants start growing out of them, and then he is just becomes one with the tree. Mm-hmm. So I always took this part as our Hugh Jackman character basically saying, accepting the fact that it, you cannot cheat your own death in this whole fight for immortality is bullshit because he just accepts the fact at that point in time that we all die and his wife is dead and he's like accepting that. Um, at the same time, when he accepts her mortality, you see that his spirit or soul or whatever can now kind of go on. Um, and so I, you know, I, I was, was thinking about that. Like, is that him? Because she said, you know, cause that's the end of the conquistador story that we know that like the tree of life doesn't turn out to be like what he thinks it is. And is, is that him sort of telling the audience that, Oh, now I've accepted the fact that we cannot live forever. We can't cheat death. All this. Did you all, is that kind of in line with what you guys thought or am I off base there? Um, I, I don't think you can take that. Lit- so, if you pay attention to the chapter that she ends with, where I, I can't remember the, the the line verbatim, but it's basically saying that that conquistador character sees nothing but the sword coming for him, right? Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is the last chapter he ends up writing is that the 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 Mayan then says, "Oh, I I didn't know that you were the father, right?" And so he gives his own life so the conquistador mm-hmm. can go to the tree of life. And then as he takes this, he ends up going through that entire myth that she is presenting to him when they're in the museum. Cause she's going through that and saying, Hey, here's the, how the father was created and all the plants oh, yeah. and everything came yeah. out of his body. So I don't know if it's necessarily it's where I think people, and again, my opinion, where I think people get this movie wrong is that the movie is about the acceptance of death. That's an aspect of it. I think, I think it's when you look at the cycle and the life and, you know, um, Judeo acceptance of life. I think it's the acceptance of life more so than the acceptance of death. Uh, this is, this is interesting where I wrote something down when you were talking through that, um, Christian review where they said it was anti-Christian. I, I can kind of see that because part of Christianity is be good on earth, do all of these things, hit the checkbox. When you die, you're judged and you go to this place, right? Mm, but I'm oversimplifying. Yeah, but like, yeah. I, I'm just oversimplifying. I'm just saying it, it, if you were to oversimplify Christianity, it's here's a set of rules to follow and believe in but this thing. But there's also like the child molesters who on death row accept I, Jesus in their heart. and I, I know. And there's yeah. forgiveness and everything else. But I'm I'm really, again, yeah, you are. way oversimplifying. Mm-hmm. Where at the end of the day, you're basically saying, I'm trying to achieve this goal. I don't know if this film is about achieving a goal as much as just moving on. Because personally, what I get out of it is it, it's part of the grieving process, like accepting this, but then also accepting that your your job at that point is to go on and continue living. And then to accept this this creation and this cycle is is always going to occur. Like 
death and creation are the same thing. It's that yin and yang thing. So I think, I think this thing has more Buddhist type qualities and, and Zen philosophy going on into it versus I, I can totally see if you're taking a Christian aspect on that, you're like, Ooh, I don't really like this because, um, I die and I end up at heaven or hell. This says death is creation. Creation is death. And then death is creation. It is that cyclical movement. It's very interesting, very interesting theories. And again, I think that's what makes this film special is that people think that way. You know, I don't, I don't even know how to take the end. At first I said, you know, maybe, maybe it's his own death, but maybe it's just the freedom from being rid of the constant pain. I mean, that whole ball and chain's dead. So oh my God. <laughs> okay, that one. Okay. I think I finally did it. Yeah, you did. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, you're there. <laughs> hey, yeah. yeah, but no, that I, I, but there is an, an emotional release from all of that. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's, I mean, I, I, there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with the imagery at the end. I mean, you can't tell me I've never seen white sap out of any tree. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, you know, you can't tell me that it didn't cross your mind. No, it's other, semen. It's supposed to be know. like, that's yeah. the, yeah, yeah. And for then sure. it's, I mean, yeah, he like the right? stabs yeah. it with a knife. Yeah. It is finally stabs with a knife. So there's penetration. The earth overtakes him. You mm -hmm. know, he rubs something to resolve himself to fix a wound. The wound becomes overtaken, uh, by the earth itself at the next moment, the globe, the interior of his mind, which, you know, you could say is tied to the, the tree could be the brain stem of her. He could have been the tumor on her stem. I don't know. You can go down all kinds of rabbit holes with this stuff. And I think that's what Aronofsky does so well is he makes you ponder and think these things. And I, I think people don't always like to think that when they go to a movie, I think they just want a love story sometimes, but I think honestly, this is as true a love story as you can get because, you know, he sacrificed everything he could, even his own humanity to a degree to try to save his wife's life. Again, I still believe it's a bit of a selfish behavior, but I don't mean selfish as in bad. I mean selfish as in he's obsessed. Well, it's, a, it's his coping mechanism. Yeah. yeah, I mean, he's, he has no, they don't have children. Yeah. This is his life. His life is his work and his wife, probably the other way around. And eventually his wife became secondary to his work because he was trying to save his wife. Guilt comes into that, which is also a part of grieving, anger, frustration, like Troy was talking about, sadness. Uh, depression, all those emotions are played out by Hugh Jackman throughout this film in some way, fear, anxiety. Uh, and the only way I could accept the end of it was that it was a release of some sort. He had finally reached the destination. It wasn't the destination he wanted, but it was the destination that was going to play out regardless. And his soul is released from the prison he's created himself and, and, and saying that out loud makes it sound like I'm being crass, but I'm not. I, I remember I wasn't close with my dad like Troy was with his, but when my dad died, it was almost like a relief because he had put himself through so much hell over the last year of his life that it was a, it was a punch to the gut, but at the same time, it was this lifting of weight. And uh, there was something kind of... <sighs> I don't want to use the word euphoric because that word implies happiness, but it was a, it was a relief. It was a, this, this needed to happen. It was just getting worse. It was tough on everybody. 
and it was just bringing everybody down and it just had to happen and i don't know maybe that's what the his body shooting up through the globe and well is his yeah his body goes up but that final moment when the star implodes his his body is gone yeah so i i do think you get some type of visual representation of like enlightenment or ascension from a buddhist uh standpoint because if if you if you take it from that perspective you know so it words sometimes don't do justice to what people will feel when they go through enlightenment or or have that because it's almost releasing yourself from all of the definitions of what emotion is both good bad indifferent the other but you're also understanding that the whole death and creation thing it's it's one in the same like you you can't have one without the other so right. i i almost feel like that last part of it is him mentally going through that enlightenment or ascension on this topic of grief and saying mm-hmm. i can find release from this once i accept these facts about you know what the cosmos or or you know what life is all about more or less right hey it's it, it's just to me this is just a it's a thinking man's movie it's um you know i, I just i love all the little touches too. the the idea of the tree having hair on it like the hair on the nape of her neck yeah mm-hmm. And the ties to that, to him whispering to the tree, to whispering to her, right up to her Makes neck. Makes the hair stand up. Yep. Yeah. It's just, I mean, there's a list of a lot of gorgeous imagery, imagery here. And I th- I just find the movie very touching. I do. And, you know, it, it makes me cry every time I watch it. So <laughs> I've watched it twice and I've cried all both times. No, that's, that's, I think, the most powerful scene. And again, probably Hugh Jackman's best performance is him putting the ink on his finger because he lost his ring. Yeah. after she dies i mean it's so gut-wrenching but you feel at that moment he has hit the the rock bottom of his despair like yeah, yeah. and you have you have to get there i think sometimes in order to um ascend all, all those thoughts or feelings or even appreciate it yeah i mean it is true in any situation you have to get to the bottom before you can get back up i mean it just it's unfortunate but it is the truth yeah absolutely did you, what other questions you had? It sounded like you had a couple of them. Well, um, that was basically, I mean, the rest of it, like, I think leaving it open for other people to sort of interpret their own way, I think is an important aspect of this film because us three have way different, um, a, like, like I, my father's still alive and my, both of my parents are still alive. You know? So we all have like different aspects of like death. And, and I think that is a, unique part of this film is is you're taking your own baggage with you when you watch something like this and and there is, and i think the important thing is is there is no right answer there's no wrong answer there's no right answer it's just the answer that you come up with after finishing this and you know it is a little obtuse and it's a little bit uh vague but i think that's on purpose to allow for people to bring in their own interpretations and allow them to bring in their own personality. Um, I, I, I'm going to say this. I don't, I, I don't know if you guys agree with this because something you said just kind of, I don't know, clicks something in my brain. I, I almost feel like, uh, and this comes from a quote I saw from Aronofsky where he kind of equates this film to like a Rubik's cube and says, you can solve it a bunch of different ways, but you're going to get to this answer, what it's about, et cetera. 
do you think in Aronofsky's opinion, uh, you, you could take this film and it, and it's very dense and it has all these different, uh, stories going on at, at once. Right. But in his mind, there is one single vision or answer, meaning you, you can get there in different ways. But when you talk about interpretation, he's expecting everybody to come to the same answer of what he's saying, but he's expecting everybody to get there differently. Mm. When you bring in the Rubik's cube analogy, like there's only one solution to a Rubik's cube. It's like all sides are the same color. That, um, that's the end state. But to get there, you can do it a couple yeah, of different ways, a, right? A million different I, ways. I, yeah. And it, here's my opinion. Like just in some of his films, I, I feel like he does have that gold nugget of information or voice that he's putting in there. And he wants you to discover it. But in his head, there's a right answer. He's just yeah. expecting you to, to get there in different ways. That, that just feels like, he, he just feels like that director that would do that when like, if you were to come to him and be like, well, I, I think the fountain's about this. He's like, Nope. Fountain's about this. Like, this is what it's about. You can get there in different ways, but this is what it's about. I feel like he's that type of director. I don't know if you guys get that impression. I, I feel that way, but I also feel that, you know, a lot of his work is, you know, a lot of his work is tied to religious, you know, to the Jewish religion, to Christianity, uh, to the human, uh, uh, condition i feel like a lot of his work is you know it's interpretation which you know it, you're right i mean I, yeah that he might have a solution at the end but you know just like the bible the bible has a solution maybe at the end but it's open to interpretation and lord knows everybody's interpreted it differently <laughs> <laughs> true so i think he's interested in challenging people with his movies i think he's interested in maybe he has a final endpoint to his thought process and what he's trying to do but i think he wants you to bring the uh, heavy lifting so to speak right movie and i think he wants you to figure out what you want from that piece which is really uh, in a lot of ways is true art really right i mean mm -hmm. a real artist creates something you ask them and some of them will be like i don't i don't, I don't even know what i did you know, I just, I did something, you know, they don't always know. And sometimes it just speaks to people. I often use the analogy. It's a bit of a cliche now, but I often use the Jackson Pollock analogy, right? I mean, 20 people can walk in and look at a Pollock painting and be like, eh, it looks like shit. <laughs> and there's that one person that walks in like, oh man, look the way he threw the paint here, the way he threw the paint there. It just, it works. And, uh, it doesn't matter what I think at that point, that person that, that, that is, it moved them. That's and true. that's the way, that's the way I feel like Arnofsky's films are. I feel like he's divisive in a way because his films move you sometimes and sometimes they don't. And, uh, I think he's perfectly happy working in that realm and challenging the viewer. I mean, what if his, what if his solution to the, his Rubik's cube is that he made you think, True. Maybe it's not yeah. about the actual film itself. It's about what what process you went through to just come up with what it, it could be. Yeah, because I think like, uh, and again, it's his piece of art. It's his 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 work. So I would never say anything to a creator like this. But it almost cheapens the film for me that he would think like, oh, there's only one way to look at this. Well, one solution. I don't know if it cheapens. I, I mean, I'm always interested in an artist who says, 
this is what I did and this is what I'm trying to say. Like, this is the message I'm trying to convey. I, I find that interesting. Now you can agree or disagree with that message. Yeah, okay. I guess I guess there's the agreement part is, is important to that. Yeah, I, all I'm saying is I, I, just a couple of quotes and even some of the films that I've seen of his, it feels like there is very much a singular voice or message that comes through on these uh, in, in The Fountain, just my interpretation of it. It feels like he is dealing with something very specific here not just thematically, but from a message perspective Hmm. and, and it feels like, okay, you can get there several different ways. But, um, like if, if you were to come to the fountain and go, well, I I think it's a, it's a really bold environmentalist tale. Uh, I'd be like, I I don't know where you got that. And I really don't think that message is there like in any of the imagery or anything else. No, no, I don't know. I, I I like Brad's question though. What if you know? What if the solution? What if the the whole point of it is that's? I I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. He's he's a he's always interesting. That's what I'll say. He's always interesting. Well, I I, I can tell you this. I cannot wait to talk about Mother um, with you guys. We will review that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I I am dying to revisit that, and I'm dying. That one to seems talk to, to have a little bit more of a point to it, but from what I read, but I, I have it's much more heavy handed too. It, yeah. Yes, a hundred percent. Um, that one will be interesting to see how successful everybody thinks he is in in terms of, I guess, getting that Rubik's cube solution across. Hey, the have line. you ever heard about the Bible? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it seems like almost all of his work in some way, shape, or form is based on either uh, Kabbalah, Jewish Kabbalah, or uh, Christianity in some Christianity, way. Christianity, yeah. Yep. yeah. Yeah. Which makes sense because, I mean, pretty much all human stories kind of derive from those kinds of things. So, yeah. No. Look, looking forward to his new film, too, Adrift. He's got a horror film coming out, Jared Leto, Ghost Ship movie. Yeah. Hey, look, anything this guy, I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to find time to go back and visit Noah, but. Um, we're, we're on this kick right now where, where Cameron watched the fountain with me and he, he really liked it. He's like, that was super interesting. We had a, we had a very interesting movie weekend. I got to go with our good friend, Randy to the AFI and he and I started the the morning with white heat, which I'd never seen from 1949. And then the family came down to meet us for come and see, which Wow. Family movie. It's a family movie. Never seen that film before. (laughs) And you want to talk about trying to cope with the topic of death and destruction. And so we watched that. And then the next day I'm like, Hey, let's, let's watch the founding. I got to watch that. Um, So yeah. What, what a movie weekend. Yeah. Are you talking about the come and see the, the Russian film? Yeah. Yeah. I've never seen it before. Got to see it on the big screen. You guys are all going into Monday going, is 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 life really worth going through all I, this? I, just give me a spreadsheet. I'm ready to go. Yeah, <laughs> give me some numbers. They all make sense. I do not want to see death and destruction. There's no interpretation for a while. with numbers. Yeah, yep. I just it's want some either, math right now. It either reconciles or it does not. <laughs> Humanity is much more complicated than math. Yes. Oh, yes. Uh, oh geez, I agree. Uh, any other final thoughts on this one? No. no I, I hope it. I hope at some point it gets the proper recognition it deserves with like a really nice like big bonus filled release i really do like a real nice home media release i really do think it deserves that it needs a 4k so bad like so it's a beautiful looking film too yeah Yeah. i need it needs a retrospective documentary it needs all kinds of stuff yes 100 percent. i'd like to see this one loaded because it's that kind of movie well, it's time to ask that question then. I'll, I'll start with you, Sammy. Um, we just got done having a, a very interesting conversation, entirely different from last week, 
uh, on the fountain from 2006. So uh, is is it a bomb? No, it is not a bomb. Even though I sometimes will come on here and say that I understand why something's a bomb because of it being a tough sell. This one, I can't blame on the filmmaker. This one, I have to say that people should have been more open and receptive to going to see this. And it's not a bomb. It is definitely not a bomb. Okay. Well, what about you, Brad? Where are you landing on this one? Yeah, I'm right there with Sammy. Not even close. Not a bomb. Okay. It's uh, make it unanimous. I, I think it's interesting. Like uh, when we talked about the ninth configuration, I know you guys love that film and there's something I really appreciate that film, but there's something about it that just doesn't hit with me. And it, and it has that religious allegory and stuff in there, but it doesn't speak to me. Uh, this one does which I'm always afraid of, like, at what point is that pretentious aspect going to turn me off of a film? But uh, I, I really bathe in it on this sucker. And in most of Aronofsky's work, I'm, I'm cool with his, his pretentious voice coming through. I think it's really good. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a loud voice, too. It is loud. So, Sammy, you're back for next week, uh, and we're, we're switching gears big time. What, what are we talking about, Brad? Yeah, so DC is in the uh, in the news now because they just had a huge bomb called the Flash, but we're not doing the Flash. We are doing one of the original <laughs> DC bombs from 2011, starring Ryan Reynolds, not as Deadpool, but as Green Lantern. Yeah, directed by Martin Campbell. Hmm. Can you believe it? That's gonna be interesting. This yes, is another is one. This is another one you asked to be on the minute we put it on the. Yeah, the I can. I, I got some. I got some. Uh, I got some. I don't want to give away too much. I got some ideas. Okay. But I, I think I have said, uh, I think when I first came on the show, you're a DC guy. I'm a DC guy. Mm -hmm. And that my favorite superhero probably is Green Lantern. Yeah. Yeah. So this will be that, fun. That helps that movie in some ways. Okay. Well, what's. Uh, I will the, be interested in revisiting this, though. <laughs> <laughs> what's the gentleman's guy got going on um, last week? Uh, what, what did we do last week? Hey, does anybody know? Cause, uh, you know, I do the show and I never know what I do. I know exactly what you did and I'm still not entirely happy. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, it was two warriors or warriors yeah, two. warriors sorry. two. Yeah. Come on, Brad. Yeah. It was an eight out of 10. <laughs> Jesus, um, eight. <laughs> I'm so mad about you mean that. Eight plus maybe one and a half. To I'm going to write a strongly worded email <laughs> to you and Will on that one, man. An eight. Uh, yeah. We did do Samuel Hung's uh, warriors two. Troy didn't necessarily agree with the fact that we loved it. We didn't love it enough in Troy's eyes. So again, our, our podcast is open to interpretation. I have to, I, I understand where you, we need to go. How you get there is your pro, your problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I need you to get to like a nine and a half on this one. <laughs> that Rubik's cube. There's uh, a yeah. solution. Yeah. But, uh, actually, yeah, my Rubik's cube is really easy. It's all white. So I, mean, <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. I think it's the sap from the tree of life. Uh, anyway, um, next week will be, uh, or by the time you hear this, uh, you'll probably have heard uh, the next episode, which will be the Divine Enforcer, which is a 1992 straight to video piece of sleaze with Eric Estrada, Jan Michael Vincent playing Monsignors and Priest. I haven't seen that. I, I remember renting that on VHS. It's Looney Tunes. And Don Stroud <laughs> going full tilt crazy as a quote unquote daylight vampire. I'm smelling a Tubi. Is that on Tubi? Can I it watch is that? Not. that, that is not. Oh. That is a YouTube only. Okay. If you I want to go watch, looking for it. I might watch that on YouTube before I go to bed tonight. So As legally as you can. It's only 90 minutes, so it's it won't take up a big chunk of your time. Uh, and it's pretty sleazy, and it's pretty messed up. 
So, but uh, yeah, folks should check it out. There you go. And I, I just want to echo something that you talked about. I, I mean, as much as I give you grief about the Warriors 2 grade, uh, one thing you did mention was the quality of that and even the other error release of Hand of Death. And mm-hmm. I got I to gotta support you a, a thousand percent. Like those films have never looked as good mm-hmm. as those prints. And I, I really want people to go out and buy those and support them. And and just keep this train going of of these classic Hong Kong films coming out. So we're getting so many. And I'm so all excited. Yeah, look so like like don't deserve to look that good, but they do. I mean, they I, do deserve to look that good. But they like, do. Yeah, but I, I mean, couldn't it, imagine. It's insane to see them. Uh, yeah. It really is. I mean, it's like a totally different movie. Yeah, it's it's just nuts. And I hope that it continues. I really do. Yeah, I mean, if I were watching it on VHS Pan and Scan, I might have been like, yeah, that's an eight. But that new Arrow, <laughs> to see it in its full representation, at least should be a nine-nine. But, uh, hey. Well, <laughs> not, not, 9.9. 9.9. Uh, hey, look, man. In my world, eight or higher is, you know, you have to have that. That's a great film. I, maybe, I got to, Maybe eight was a little low. Don't make me question myself. Listen, I got to the point where I went home and I'm like, okay, how many movies have they reviewed? And how Every, many how many have you movies? It? Huh? Have you rewatched Warriors Two? Yeah, God, you'd be so mad at <laughs> But I'm sitting there going, okay, statistically, the number of nines and tens you have given out don't add up to an actual ratio when you look at the number of movies that you've reviewed. Like, I think you're being a little stingy. Don't be, don't be, don't be bringing math into our humanity-based <laughs> podcast. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Um, Brad. Yes, how, sir. how do people reach us if they happen to don't like our take on a particular <laughs> film and, and want to write a strongly worded email or, or even suggest well, your something. cell phone number is no, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> that is not about pod at gmail.com. You can hit us up on our website, which is not podcast.com hit the contact us button, or you can get us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and Troy threads. Have you heard about this new thing called threads? Are we on threads? On I, we, we are on there. Okay. All right. So I got to download that now, huh? You, you do threads. Okay. Threads. Uh, all right. We're on threads. Um, and then what other shows outside of the amazing gentleman's guide to midnight cinema? Yeah. You have our friends, Jose and Justin at watch get plus the VHS files podcast night of the living podcast. Uh, the Mixtape Podcast, and Raiders of the Podcast, our buddies from across the pond. Yes. All great shows. All great shows. Uh, and the latest Watch Skip Plus had me like yelling at the sky. Uh, I thought they were too nice to the Indiana Jones movie. but Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I saw your thoughts on it. Uh, that was a pretty good review. I like that. Okay. Yeah. You should check again, that out. Again, math came up in that one, too. Well, look. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say this. Also, also not staying in your lane came up in that episode too. <laughs> Just talking of bombs and stuff. I did not appreciate that. That's true. That's true. Feel our stick. Uh, that's going to be that's going to be a pretty big significant bomb, isn't it? Yes. Oh, yeah. Um well, it's what's funny is 350 million on a movie. That one and The Flash. Uh, I think The Flash, they're already putting on digital. It's fell it fell it's, out of the top 10 this week. It's not in the top 10. That's nuts. That Kraken movie made two point like eight million dollars, and it was in it beat the Flash this week. We're gonna have so many movies to talk about just from this year. Um, it's crazy. It's crazy. Hey, the Not About Podcast is now a daily podcast <laughs> because of 2023. Thanks a lot. That's funny. Uh, uh, what else, Brad? I think that 
I think that's all the house cleaning items, right? Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. Thank you for downloading the episode. Thank you for listening to some of our personal stories as it relates to this film, as well as our uh, interpretations of this uh, piece of prestigious, uh, I don't know, art? I guess, yeah, art. Uh, Come back next week when we're going to do the exact opposite and talk about a conflict movie. So we'll catch you then. Don't lose your head. Okay, so Darren Aronofsky, he wrote a film, and I was I, I wanted to make this joke so bad, but you stole it. You go, yeah, he wrote a film, and I was going to ask you, I was like, what was this film called that he wrote in 2002 uh, about a submarine? And you were going to go, say the film. Below? These nuts. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> I was, oh. you have no idea about... Oh. 5.30 today, I was just thinking about, all right, all right, what kind of joke can I make? And I That is the most like, complex <laughs> joke setup ever. That, that's like the Mission Impossible and of then, jokes. <laughs> I know, but then all of a sudden you just said, yeah, then in 2002 wrote a movie called Below and like just moved on. And I was like, God damn it, all that out the window because you just had to quickly move on. You got to learn to adapt, Brad. <laughs> adapt, change. Yeah. yeah. Do you know Zach Galifianakis was in Below? Okay. Okay. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. All right.